Chapel, Mason City. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ." But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father in heaven, we turn to you, the God of the word, and we approach the word today just as it is, your very word to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we do submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm wondering how this new life in Christ ought to affect my role as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, and as an employee or an employer. The part of the passage where he deals with slaves and masters, the easiest translation for us to understand the application is to apply it to employer-employee situations. So you've been a Christ follower for a while, and you're wondering how Jesus, how this new life in Christ should affect these roles and these relationships, and that's why I've called this Fulfilling Our Roles. This wonderful passage will tell Colossians, the Colossians, how they live these different roles out in society. Now, the outline is very simple. You can see it before you. Number one, husbands and wives, the parents and children's masters and bond servants. You can see it there. Here's really the whole idea of where we're going. Since we have been given new life in Christ, it is only fitting that we should live out our various roles in a way that reflects this new life. And really, that's kind of the whole point of Colossians, right? Is Jesus is superior. He's supreme to all this other stuff because he gives you new life. Christianity is not a philosophy. This is actually something where God comes and gives you a new life. He lives inside of you. He transforms you into a different person from the inside out. This isn't philosophy. This isn't religion. Now, how should your life look now that you are uh, this new creation? And so he starts with husbands and wives. Look at verse 18. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, here we come to one of the most contentious verses in the Bible, especially in the last, you know, 100 years or so. And he says here, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, the term submit is a very simple term to understand. It's a military term. And what it does is it refers to the organization of an army underneath an authority structure, right? You know how like in the military, there are different levels of authority and groups would be assembled under the authority of another rank. That's the idea of this term here. Now, Paul's command, as he gives it here, it wasn't limited to the day of the Colossians. And I say that because in another place where Paul says that women ought to, you know, that wives ought to submit to their husbands, he uses proof for this 
in different parts of, you know, he draws from different parts of scripture. One of them would be the order of creation. He says in the book of Timothy, he says, man was created first and then woman. She was taken from the side of man. And so Paul uses that as logic to support this authority structure that is in the home. By the way, the Bible has two places where God has reserved male leadership. One is in the home, like we're talking about today, and the other is in the church. The Bible says clearly that women are not to be pastors. They are, that is a role that is reserved for men in the body of Christ and in the home. Those are the two places, right? And now Paul also refers to um, another place where he talks about the establishment of authority in the created realm, in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, he says that even within the Trinity, we see submission and order. Christ, in his earthly ministry, he said that he was submitted to the will of the Father, that he only did those things which he you know, heard from the Father. Are you guys familiar with those verses? He says, I only say the things that I hear the Father saying right? And he was, you know, Jesus submitted himself to the Father. So even within the Godhead, within the Trinity, we see a created order. And that's what he's getting at when he says wives are to submit to their own husbands. Now, we need to make this clear. This is not a matter of one person being superior uh, or better than another. It's not a deal of, you know, inferiority. It's nothing like that. The Bible is clear that all humans are absolutely equal, Okay, And with that, any form of racism or sexism or chauvinism or feminism or any of this stuff is all counter to what Scripture says. Christ says you're all equal, right? It's kind of an illustration like this. I used to work at Guitar Center in California, okay? And man, I used to love Guitar Center. I'd wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and I'd go to my job and, and I, you know, and uh, I was like my home. And in fact, I bought, well, not this guitar, but well, yeah, that guitar came from there as well. I have two guitars that came from there. I used to love working there. But we had this manager for a while. I've, I'm not going to say his name. It's so tempting to say his name. I want to like, I want to gossip about him, but uh, you know, my sinfulness, right? And, but this guy, well, let's put it this way. My department manager I looked up to this dude. He was, he was a smart dude. He was, had good leadership traits. Uh, but the store manager, <laughs> not so much. He'd come in an hour and a half late. He'd go back to his office. He'd come back, you know, he'd been locked in his office for like a couple hours. He'd come, he went in there like this and he came out and he was like this, if you know what I mean, all <laughs> right? And you're like, whoa. And he'd be like micromanaging and throwing stuff and grabbing his hair and like, oh, and you're like, Whoa, dude. Now, but my department manager never did anything but support him. Was it because he was, you know, a better store manager than my department manager could have been? No, not at all. He submitted to him because he was the department manager and the other guy was the store manager. You see, there's two different roles. It has nothing to do. What, what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about roles. Now in marriage, God has established roles. The husband's held accountable for leadership and the wife is held accountable for supporting the husband's leadership. You're gonna, women, you're gonna answer to God for how you supported your husband's leadership. Men, you're gonna answer to God for how you led the home spiritually and otherwise. Now, 
What this has to do with the verb tense where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Okay, it has to do, you look at the verb tense in the Greek and it's a continual thing, but it's voluntary. A wife is to willingly submit herself, right? The whole idea of a husband being like, you need to submit to me. If a husband ever has to resort to saying something like that, you're not doing it right, you know? So goes on to qualify with the next statement, and it says, wives, submit, willingly submit yourself to the leadership of your husband, to, his, to the authority of the home, as, uh, to your own husbands. I'm sorry, go back to the other verse there. We're just taking this one really apart. To your own husbands. Now that qualifies this even more. There are some that are completely wrong that think the Bible supports an overall submission of women to all men that, you know, women are inferior and men are, you know, to be the leaders in every single thing. This goes against that. Wives, you're only to submit to your own husbands, not to all men. And so I just wanted to point that out quickly, because honestly, there have been quite a few boneheads that have used the Bible to support their chauvinism uh, throughout history, okay? And he goes on and says, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this is another important statement right here. This further qualifies Paul's statement about submission. When it comes to submission, there are always limits, right? And even in the Bible, in fact, the Bible teaches that we are to submit to the ruling authorities. In other words, as Christians, we're to submit to the government. We're to follow their laws. In fact, Peter says that, and the leadership at that time was the most cruel dictatorship the world's ever seen. Uh, and Peter says, submit to them, right? So as Christians, we're to submit to the government, to leadership, but only so far as it doesn't cause you to sin against God or conscience, right? So, you know, the, well, I don't want to get into that. The Bible talks about that, and you can read about it in Romans chapter 13, if you're interested. There are limits to a wife's submission to her husband. So if a husband asks a wife then to disobey the objective commands of scripture, she's never to submit to that. You know, husband's like, oh, I got an idea. We're going to rob a bank, man. You, you drive the car. Or how about this? I got a tax thing going and I'm just going to say this on my income tax return coming up. And you're like, no, 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 no. That's not right. And he's like, oh, nobody will know. It's just taxes. You don't submit to that right? You never submit to when a husband asks you to sin. You also never submit to a husband who's like medically, mentally incapacitated and asking you to do insane things, or if he's on drugs, addicted to drugs, or he's abusive. You never submit yourself to abuse of any kind, right? Ever, ever, ever. If there's ever abuse going on in a home, you need to get your, you have to quit talking yourself into staying in that home for however it is that you're talking yourself into staying and you need to get out of that home. You need to get surrounded with people that'll support you. You never submit to a husband that is abusive. And that is not just physically, that's you know, physically, sexually, mentally, all these different things. You don't let people talk down to you and call you names, none of that stuff. You never submit to that, right? That needs to be said. You never submit to a husband you don't have to submit to a husband if they've committed adultery. The marriage in Jesus' eyes is broken if they've committed adultery. It doesn't mean you have to divorce him if he repents, you know, and, and you see genuine fruit of repentance. You don't want to divorce. You don't have to, but the, you can. You're, you have grounds for divorce at that point. Now, please understand, please hear me. When I say these are the, re these are the times where you don't submit, never does this as is fitting in the Lord, never does this qualify a wife that says, I'm only going to submit to him when I agree with what he's doing. 
No, that's not what that means. You might not like the way your husband has chosen to lead. You might not like the way that he makes decisions. You might think that he should be doing five things that he's not doing right now. You might be like, come on, you know? And, and you might see the better way to be doing things, like my department manager versus the... You might be seeing the things, but you can't, you can't say, I just don't like the way that this is going. So I'm, you know, when he does what I want him to, then I'll submit to him, right? That's not what this is talking about. Wives are to be submitted to their husband's leadership unless those other things that I mentioned, unless he's getting you to go against scripture, objective scripture. So not just against your style of leadership, right? Now, again, in marriage, I want to say this. I want you to hear this. Husbands, you're going to be charged with the leadership role. God is going to look at you and say, how did you lead spiritually in this home? Number one, how did you lead the kids? How did you lead your wife spiritually? How did you lead in other matters? That's what you're going to be held accountable for at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat. When, when you appear before God, he's going to say, what did you do? Wives, you're going to be held accountable for how well you supported that man, how well you submitted yourself under his leadership. You took the position of assistant manager while he was the manager right? That's how God has designed Christian marriage. And might I say something really quick? My tone of voice is all hardcore and heavy like this, right? Because I'm a preacher. But isn't it a beautiful thing, gals? I mean, the gals that have embraced their God-given, God-established roles, they love it. They absolutely love it because it brings joy to do that which God has called you to do, right? Husbands that have stepped into leadership, you, you know as well as I do, you feel like you fail miserably, but you appreciate the grace of the Lord all that much more, <laughs> you know? And it's a beautiful thing to be, to be the leader that God's called you to be, to, to man up and to do that, right? It's a good thing. Now, when a wife is to submit to a husband, please hear me in this. Any husband with any brains gets a woman, marries a woman that he respects her intelligence, so you, you, what a good leader does, a good leader surrounds themselves with people that are smarter than them, right? I was only going to marry somebody, and I'm not trying to brag about my wife again, but remember I told you if I do and you get sick of it, tough luck. I was only going to marry somebody where when I looked at their spiritual walk, I was actually a little bit stirred up myself and like, man, whoa. I was only going to marry somebody that I thought was more intelligent than me, right? And so that's good leadership, right, is... It's, it's not all about me. I'm not a dictator. I surround myself, and I do the same thing in the church. All the people that serve in this church, I respect. At, I look at them as they bring something that I don't have, right? And any, any husband with intelligence marries a woman that he wants her opinion. He doesn't just say, you're going to submit to every single thing that I decide. He's going to sit there and try to figure out her perspective because she sees things you don't see, you know? And uh, so, nonetheless... The husband understands, though, that he's accountable for the decision-making. You know, we're not going to be able to stand before God and just say, and he say, what did you do? Well, I just, she overpowered me in every single thing. And just, you know, so I just gave up and just decided to check out. You can't get away with that, man. You're held to be the leader. You may have to get a different tactic, right? Because you're not dwelling with your wife according to knowledge, if that's what's happening, right? As Peter says that you ought to do. Let me give you some practical applications. These first points are going to take a little bit longer because um, there's a lot more to say about them, I think. Here's a practical application, okay, for you gals that are dating, <clears throat> all right? Or this could apply, you know, parents, you're going to try to help your kids start dating, you know, eventually. When you are looking for a guy, it's good that you want to meet somebody that's smart and funny and good looking and who, you know, knows how to take care of himself, knows how to make money, has a good sense of humor, family guy, 
But the one thing that you want to ask when you're looking at guys that you're dating is, could you submit yourself to this man's leadership? Because the looks are going to fade. All the other stuff's going <laughs> to... <She's... laughs> Goes both ways. <laughs> Listen, those things are important that I mentioned, but what's really important is, could you see yourself submitting to this man's leadership? Do you respect his spiritual walk with Jesus? If you're going to marry a guy and you want him to be the spiritual leader of the home, here's a principle you have to understand. A good leader must be a good follower, right? A husband cannot lead the home in a Christian way if he's not being led by Jesus. He can't do it. He will never be able to disciple your kids if he does not get in the word consistently. He will never be able to disciple the kids if he doesn't pray consistently. A man cannot lead his home unless he can first follow Jesus. Good leaders are good followers. Now, if you marry him, you're with him permanently unless, you know, he commits adultery or something like that. So you've got to really think, do I admire this man's spiritual life? He doesn't, he, he's the kind of guy that doesn't need you to help him. I used to be on Christian Mingle and all these women, you know, they put in their bio, looking for a man to help me get back to church. No, <laughs> no, I'll see you at church. And if I can't go because I'm sick, you're still there, right? Because you have a real relationship with Jesus. You're not one of these playing around sort of Christians in name only. You're a real Christian, common sense, right? Now, here's another application for married gals that are leaders in your family. Now, I'm going to say this with brotherly love to you. If you're finding yourself, gals, in a position of leadership in your marriage, your marriage is broken, okay? Your marriage is broken. Your marriage is not what God has it to be. Now, you might say, well, my marriage is fine. It's a fun thing. We have fun all the time together. It's great. We have harmony, but it's broken spiritually, Women are not to be the spiritual leader of the home. The man is. You say, well, he won't step up and do it. That's not grounds for you to step up and take his place. You could actually be reinforcing why he keeps staying down. You could maybe be burning him with all of your spiritual zeal, and he might be like, you know what? I'm checked out. I don't want anything to do with this woman that keeps usurping the authority. Just because a man won't stand up and lead doesn't mean that women should take the place. This also applies to female pastors in churches too, which nobody has the, the you know, <laughs> to say it, right? Maybe God's trying to, well, that's a whole other tangent. Keep that in mind, okay? If you're leading, it's broken, gals. Now, married gals that are embracing their God-given role as a helper and a support in their marriage, keep this up because, man, the world needs women that aren't embarrassed to be in this position. The feminist movement has come through and done everything it can to shame housewives and to shame women that embrace God-given roles. You keep it up, right? Because the world needs to see people that are fulfilling their God-given calling that are living in joy and harmony with what the Lord's called them to do. Women need role models like this. Here's one for you single guys. Bro, if you're dating, are there single guys in here? Yeah, there's, there's a couple. <laughs> no, there's one right there too. If you know a girl and you're dating her and you're thinking about possibly getting married, because I don't think you should date unless you're considering them for marriage. I don't really see why a Christian would do that, okay? 
you might call it courting instead, so you don't want to use a worldly term of dating. If you're going to get serious with somebody, you're checking them out for marriage, right? I don't care how non-romantic it is to say that. You don't say it, you know. Listen, I'm looking at you for marriage, you know. I'm going to see how you measure up. Guys, if you're dating a girl and she has authority issues, she's called to submit to your authority, as the leader. Now, if this gal has a bad relationship with authority figures in her life, with her mom, with her dad, if she has a bad relationship with authority like the law, she's constantly breaking small laws, acting like it doesn't really make a big difference. She doesn't follow follow rules and regulations and understand that a Christian is to submit to these things. Well, hear this proverb. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than it is shared with a contentious woman. Solomon had like 700 wives. This guy knows women. And he says, it's better for you to camp out all the way in the corner of your attic than it is to share this whole house with this contentious woman. You know what a contentious woman is? They're always trying to fight about everything. Every time you say something, they challenge you. They second guess every single thing you're doing. They're always like, are you sure? You well, I don't know about that. And then they go and they ask their dad what he thinks about it. Or so. You're just like, good gracious, Solomon, I, you were right. Guys, when you're dating, watch how she responds to authority in her life. Does she respect the authority figures in her life? Think soberly when you're dating, guys and girls. Think soberly. Your hormones get all whacked out, and you will start making concessions in your mind. You will. You'll start talking yourself into things that are not good for you. Listen, you need to have a friend in your life that is willing to say, Wake up! (laughs) You know, this chick's crazy! You know? (laughs) And you call old Pastor Adam. I'll do that for you. Husbands, 19, verse 19, here we go. Husbands, now, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. So this love here is agape. It's the verb form. And this is self-sacrificing love, right? A husband, you are to lay down your life for your wife. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. You say, I want to know what this looks like. Great. The Bible has a very clear answer. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. This applies to women as well, but men, we're talking about us now and how we're to love our wives. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, that's sin, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to put your name in there instead of the word love, okay? I'll put mine in there. Adam suffers long. Adam is kind. Adam does not envy. Adam does not parade himself. Adam is not puffed up. Adam does not behave rudely. Adam does not seek his own. Adam is not provoked. Adam thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. You get the idea. 
You mean the guy's not jealous when he's loving? You mean the guy's not going to sit and try to tell me stuff like, oh, I really love you so much, babe. That's why I want to make out with you, you know? That's, it really, it's not, it's not actually sex, right? If we're just doing stuff with our hands, like that's not really sex. And I just, I'm really trying to pressure you because I really want you to experience this more with me. I want to get to know you on a deeper level. And I'm a physical person. Dude, I read the love languages. Physicality is my love language. I just really want to, you know. That guy is insisting on his own, right? Man, when you're dating, you need to think about these things, but we're talking about guys now. Guys, this is how we're to love our wives. We're to completely surrender and sacrifice our lives for our wives, right? Everything. If, if it's ever a question of me, you know, oh, well, I, I got to go into my own comfort zone and do my own thing. If it's ever a question of these things, it's lay down your own life for the sake of your wife. You know, and I stand here as a guy before you that, you know, has to confess, I have a hard time setting my life down for anybody, you know? It's been said that when a husband loves his wife in this self-sacrificing way, as he is commanded by God, that she has no issue submitting to his leadership. Now, there are some times where that's probably not true, but as a generality, it is true. Women are hardwired to be submissive and to love their husbands and to bring love in. And when a husband loves his wife gently and sacrifices, and it's visual, like she, she understands, like, yeah, he's put something aside for me. He's laid his life down for me. When a woman sees that, the natural response of a woman is to give her heart to that man. You know, that's natural. Unless, of course, we're all broken and damaged and there's things we all need to work through, right? But that's God's design, which is a beautiful one. And he goes on to say, do not be bitter towards them. Don't be harsh with your wife. Don't be short with them. Don't be impatient. Don't be fed up. Don't be, don't bother me right now, guy. This is certainly the case with some men. Their inner life is not what it should be, and it manifests itself into all these things that I've just mentioned. The Bible speaks of a possibility of developing a root of bitterness, now, you think about, you know, spring's coming and you're going to have to go start pulling weeds and, you know, man, it's hard to get the root out of some of them, isn't it? A root takes root in your heart. You can have bitterness take root in your heart. If you're a husband here today or anybody here today and you're finding that you have a root of bitterness, you're going to have to ask the Lord to uproot that thing, you know? It's going to be a difficult process. You're going to have to press into your relationship with the Lord to get this thing removed from your life right? And there's all kinds of things that contribute to it. And I don't want to talk about them at length because we just have short time. Proverbs 19.22 says this, what is desired in a man is kindness, right? I was reading this book the other day because I like to read far and wide. I like to read what the world says about things. And I was reading a book about women that this guy wrote. And he said that what you have to do uh, you know, to make sure it stays interesting in your relationships with your, with your wife or your girlfriend or whatever, is he says, you got to treat them badly. He was as plain as day about it. And then another one of the chapters in his book says, you have to use a demon's tactic and sow confusion so she never knows that she has you. That is is a number, it's number three best-selling book about how to deal with women on Amazon. You know what's sad about this is there are a lot of women that respond to this, a lot. Girls that listen to rap music, 
Like you have been conditioned to be called bad names. Think about that. Oh, he's not talking about me. <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Brainwash. I don't listen to the lyrics. I just hear the beats. Yeah, the beats hypnotize you and the lyrics go into your subconscious mind and you can't figure out why you feel terrible about yourself. I mean, come on, wake up. Number three book on Amazon. You need to use the demon's tactics and sow confusion into your marriage. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are quite a few women that respond to things like this. And you guys know, you know, I don't know why a guy treats me like dirt. I just want to keep coming back. It's because you're broken. You're broken. You need Jesus to fix you. That's why. One more comment about marriage before moving on. There are many couples that get caught in these cycles of bad behavior, okay? So a husband will be like, I'm bitter towards my wife because she's always contentious. And the wife's like, I'm always contentious because he's always bitter. You're caught in the cycle, okay? You want to know how to get out of that cycle right now? Who cares what your spouse is doing? You be concerned about what you're called to do. You start doing that right now. And if he doesn't change, if she doesn't change, so what? So what? Agape, love, doesn't depend on the response of the other person. Agape can love even when the person is unlovely, even when they're not responsive. You be concerned about your relationship with Jesus and stop worrying so much about what he's doing or what she's doing, right? No. So a maturing marriage, the husband exercises compassion and care for his wife, responds in willing submission to his loving leadership. That is a healthy marriage. Moving on, number two. These other points aren't going to be as long as the first one. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Some of you parents are like, oh, thank God, I've been waiting 10 years of going to church here for him to get to this verse. <laughs> Listen, kids, obey your parents. This is pleasing to the Lord. Why is it pleasing to the Lord? Because it brings harmony into the home. There are some homes where the parents have allowed the kid to cause chaos in the home. They haven't disciplined them correctly, right? The Bible says if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. In other words, if you don't discipline your kid, they bring chaos into the house, right? And some of you know that. You know, I, I brought chaos into the house up until my mom started getting the belt and like, Phew! and I was, I'd laugh at her and like, you can't, and then she'd get the wooden spoon and I was like, oh yeah. And then she'd get the Tabasco sauce and I was like, man, I hate that. You know, and I love hot sauce now though. Thanks mom. So, listen, kids are supposed to obey their parents, but you know, it goes for, I mean, parents are supposed to, you know, demand obedience, you know, like you're not supposed to, you know, set your kid up for failure by not demanding obedience, you know? That's the lazy way to do things. Now, fathers, it goes on to say, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, there are a lot of ways that fathers provoke their children. Let me say what this is not saying. This is not saying that a father shouldn't, you know, discipline their children and, you know, try to motivate them to achieve something in life, to be something, right? Don't waste your kid's potential by not, you know, projecting some, you know, element of like, you believe in them and you want them to do great things in life. I mean, come on, you're robbing a child of that. You know, if, you, if you're not, you know, setting them up for, you know, something good in life and expecting something out of them, right? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about aggravating or prodding them or chiding them. This is not talking about motivating them. There are some ways that fathers discourage 
their children and it causes resentment. It causes deep-seated anger. It causes people, kids to start lashing out. A lot of this stuff is tied to how their father has treated them or their mother, you know, but what they're learning in their, what cycle people call the, the family of origin, right? The foo, F-O-O, family of origin. What they're learning in these first five developmental years of life, you know, particularly they say have the hugest effect, you know, what they're learning can, you know, cause deep-seated resentment and anger and despondency in kids. And there's a lot of ways that fathers do it. One of them, probably the, one of the biggest ones is breaking promises, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, I'll be there. And then they don't show up, you know? And you're like, oh, and, but as a kid, you know, you're willing to listen to all the excuses. Well, I had to work late and all this other stuff. And the kid goes, okay. And you walk away thinking, oh, well, they understand. And it's like, dude, that you just crushed that kid, you know? And that's contributing to their deep-seated resentment, right? And they're, they're going to have issues with relationships later on and authority figures and, and self-worth. Why am I not good enough for him to show up here? You know, he shows up all these other places. He shows up to work but he can't show up and hang out with me. You know, it's a terrible feeling. You know, I've come from experience, a lot of experience with that. Neglect, that's another one. You can neglect a kid even though you're sitting right next to him. Did you know that? And it's even getting easier with a phone in your face all the time rather than spending time and talking, right? Neglect, too busy, too busy to know them, to understand them, to talk with them, to spend time with them. The child will grow up with issues feeling like they are worth little to anyone. Right? Then they'll start doing stupid things to get attention. You'll be like, why are you doing this stuff? It's because you didn't pay any attention to them. Could be. Spoiling. Here's another one where kids get provoked, you know, where, where the, they just give them every single thing that they want. Eventually a kid's like, I don't want superficial, you know, earthly stuff. I need a relationship with Christ. I need spirituality in my life. I need direction and guidance. Spoiling totally provokes kids uh, to despondency and to, you know, all kinds of, plus it teaches them not to delay gratification in life, which could, you know, very well make an abusive, narcissistic sort of person, you know, constant criticism, harsh treatment, always pointing out the flaws, you know, always being the disciplinarian. My dad had a dad, a stepdad that was a military guy and um, great guys, military are great guys, right? But this guy, this one thought that the home was the military, Right? And so he brought the same sort of discipline that he was used to, and he thought his kid needed that. And he beat my dad, and he gave him rigid stuff all the time. You don't have your napkin in your lap? Well, you know that that's like you're grounded for a month, you know? Stuff like that. You put your elbow on the table once, get up from dinner, and go out of here. You know, that's how, you know, because he, he thought it was training him up in the way that he should go. Those are some things that discourage kids. Moving on to number three. Bond servants and masters, as I said earlier, the easiest way to understand this would be employer and employee. <clears throat> when the Bible talks about slavery, it's for another conversation, but the Bible nowhere condones slavery. In fact, um, Jesus is, was the one that started saying to people, like, you're all equal in the church. But it was part of the culture in this day and age. At one time, it's estimated that the Roman Empire was 50% slaves. That's huge, right? But there's not slaves like you think of slaves, okay? We have this idea in America of the absolute atrocity that of, of black African-American people being enslaved in the South. We have that sort of vision of it, which was an absolute satanic atrocity, right? And that's why Christians worked to abolish it in America, in England, William Wilberforce, Lincoln, right? So that was an atrocity. But this, ever seen Mr. Belvedere? 
Yeah, so you know how old I am now, right? Slavery in the Roman Empire was like indentured servants. You could sell yourself into slavery. It was like people from all walks of life did that. Luke, the beloved physician, they believed Luke was a doctor, but he was a slave. He was a bondservant. Okay, so different thing than what you think. And so what he's saying is bondservants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. So in other words, if you're working for somebody, obey the things that they say. Right? And he goes on to qualify that. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Now, this is a good principle for employers, employees. You're working at a job. You ought not to work there only by giving eye service as a man pleaser, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. I, pause for one second. The following scriptures here, if this gets into your heart, your life is going to be transformed for the better. All right? I'll tell you why when we go through it, okay? It's interesting. I read an illustration, and I think I brought a slide even for this one, possibly. That's it. So I read an illustration of a man that was overseeing a team of local workers in Africa in a missions situation. And this man had a glass eye. And he was working with the natives. And uh, so what he would do is when he would go out of the area where they were all working, he would pop his eye out and he'd put it on a, on a post <laughs> overseeing all the people there. <laughs> and they would work. I mean, they didn't know any better, right? They would work and work and work and work until one day... One of the guys got smart and he came up from behind the post and he put his hat over it and everybody started taking naps, you know. That is eye service, right? You only work when man's watching you. You know, you're only, you're only interested in people seeing you, right? You'll, you'll do the right thing while people are looking, right? That's not a way to be, man. That's, that's, you have zero integrity when that's how you are, Right? Integrity is doing the right thing even when nobody's watching, right? Now, I'm not sure if that story's true, but it, but it illustrates a point, right? I remember Kenny Lumley. You guys remember him? Kenny used to tell me that when he was working at Shopco, because there were security cameras all over the place, and he said that he used to just pretend, you know, that uh, Jesus was watching him on the security cameras when he was working, you know? And it wasn't like, oh, he's watching me. Kenny was stoked that Jesus was watching him because he wasn't a person that was giving eye service. He wasn't a people pleaser. He was a God pleaser. And so he liked it. He, just, he liked to remind himself. When a conversation came up that was maybe gossip, he remembered Jesus is watching me. And so he didn't get involved with it. When an opportunity to slack off came up, he said, Jesus is watching me. He didn't get involved in it, right? That's a really beautiful picture. And if you guys know Kenny, you can almost you know, picture him saying that, right? This is a dear guy. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever sort of work you do, put your heart and soul into it, but work as to the Lord. Now, I tell you what, I, I only work for the Lord. That's it. You say, well, you're bivocational. You have a boss. I know him as Dave. He used to be here. You, so you work for the Lord and for Dave, right? No, no, no. As I clock in for Dave, I'm working for the Lord, Right? When I used to work at the hotel over in Clear Lake, I'd clock in and my boss's name was Terry, but yet I was working for the Lord. And that's what I meant that this is absolutely transformational. 
Because there are people today that think life just, they're like, life stinks, man. You go to work and you pay bills and you die, man. And it's like, by the way, if people, you know, are saying that kind of stuff, you know, get that away from me. <laughs> You've got the stink on you, you know. <laughs> You're negative, man. Stop it, you know. Okay, this will transform your life because, you know, I, I have to admit, without working for the Lord, that's how I feel about life. I'm like, what's the point? You know, before I knew Jesus, I was like, I don't see any other point other than just getting as loaded as I can and just doing what I want when I want, which by the way, was absolutely freaking miserable eventually, right? But when this hit my heart, I realized, man, oh man, every single thing I can do, I'd be serving Jesus everywhere I go, right? How's that song go? I'll be somewhere serving, I'll be somewhere, right? Serving my Lord. This will transform your life. You can wake up tomorrow morning and say, oh, I got to go to that job again. Listen, you're going to the place that God in his sovereignty and his wisdom in his love for you and his care for you allowed you to have. That job's a gift to you from God. And he's watching you and he's saying, How, what, kind of, what kind of a worker do I have here? Do I got one that complains all the time? Got one that's got a bad attitude? Got one that's like stealing little things here and again? They're stealing time by, you know, not clocking back in after their break at the right time. They're lying. They're saying they're sick to stay home and get out of work when they're not really sick. What kind of a worker do I have? You're working for the Lord everywhere that you go. Now, one of the most despicable things somebody can do is when you have two Christians working together, and then the Christian is like, depending on the Christian brotherhood relationship to allow them to slack off. Hey, will you get back to work already? Oh, I mean, come on, brother. Let's testify. Let's, let's pray a little bit before we get back into it. Let's have a prayer meeting. Come on. That's bogus, man. You need to be the best employee in the place as a Christian, right? A Christian should be the best employee in the place always because they're working for the Lord. And it goes on to say, knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. God's going to reward you. God's going to reward you for how you go clock in at your day job if your heart is set on working for him instead of for the man. I work for the man all day. No, you work for the man. <laughs> but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he's done. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism when it comes down to it. If you blow this opportunity on this earth to earn treasure in heaven, you stand before the bema seat and you don't have a reward because of it. No partiality you're going to lose your opportunity. You're going to look back at your life and say, why did I waste so much time focused on man when I could have been focused on God? It goes on to say, masters, give your bondservants what's just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you're an employer, if you have people working for you, be just, be fair with them because, well, how has God treated you, right? So practical application, you can apply this one, this working for your Lord. You can apply this one in marriage big time. You wake up, you go out to the sink. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he left a sink full of dishes again. I mean, what was he doing? It looks like he had a party in here. There's soda water cans all over. Obviously, he made a quesadilla. The pot's still on the stove. I mean, this stuff, you know, all the burner's still on. Oh, great. Okay, this dog must have done something on the floor. Oh my gosh, what am I? Listen, you've got an opportunity right there to serve the Lord. You know, you go downstairs and you're like, you want to put your laundry in the, in the washing machine. And you're like, oh my gosh, you've got clothes in the washing machine. Can't you put them in the dryer and then take them out of there so somebody else can use the thing? Listen, you need to shut up and serve the Lord. 
right? You got to quit your complaining, partner. You're serving the Lord. That changes everything. I'm down there folding towels. I just got a dryer sheet in my pocket. For <laughs> last time I did it, you know. It's an opportunity. And Jesus is a good master. He's a good master. And it's so fun having fellowship with him while you're serving because you're in fellowship with him. He's a servant. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I can serve too. I can serve you even in the mundane things in life. That'll change your marriage right now. Do you have a marriage that's all tense and, you know, kind of weird? That'll change your marriage right now. Every single thing that you're doing, you do that out of agape for the Lord. Well, she never does it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, you're doing it with the wrong heart if you're into this reciprocal give and take thing. That's not agape. Agape is you give because he gave. Well, I don't know. I think that I need to teach him a lesson. No, that's not agape. That's not agape. God gets me with this stuff all the time. Be in the shower. Take out the hair. I'm going to put this on her scrubby. I can't put that on the scrubby. I got to throw it away. Sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry, God. You give me this beautiful blessing of a woman that I'm so challenged and I admire her so much. And here I am blowing my witness. Oh my gosh. As believers in Jesus, we're called to be different and distinct from this world around us, right? We're called to live as a peculiar people, embracing the unique and transformative power of Christ in our lives. And in order to do this, we must daily rely on the strength and guidance from the Lord, drawing upon the wisdom in his word, his love, and his grace to live as people as he has called us. Amen? Father, thank you for your word here today. And just bless it to our hearts. I trust you've spoken in Jesus' name. Amen.